Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Page 1028, Luke 3, verses 1 through 18. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of words of Isaiah the prophet, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you were required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thank you, Lorraine. That is a uh, a dangerous uh, passage that we're going to look at today. Um, Dangerous. I mean, seriously dangerous. It's an unsettling one. For those of you who don't know uh, me, my name is Ken Carlson. I used to be one of the pastors here at Oak Hills, and I get I get s- scattered, slow applause. The the uh, the um, and it's always a blast to be here. I'm so thankful. It's just fun to be with you guys and to to kind of obviously I'm sitting in the chairs when I'm in town and love all the stuff that's happening uh, here at Oak Hills. Um, I think you, you all know this, that uh, one of my jobs with our denomination is I travel over North America 
and increase in the opportunities to open up internationally, where we're talking about some of the things we've been learning here at, at Oak Hills in the area of formation and then mission, what the church is going to look like in uh, moving into uh, the, this end of Christendom time and imagining with people who are hungry for this, what, what, what can we do? What do we need to address? How do we need to get at it? And so um, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, there's this thing that we call Blue Ocean Lease over here works with me on uh, doing this. And it's uh, leaders, Christian leaders, pastors from around North America who come together. I won't give you the details, of it, but one of the things we do is we come here to Sacramento up at the Mercy Center. We spend, we spend a few days together just thinking about who we are becoming, the type of people we're becoming, what motivates uh, the leader. And uh, one of the things we teach is that the most important thing that we bring to the church are the people that we are becoming. Because that's what people see, that's what would be reproduced, and that's what people will believe. And so we went into some depth at that, and I just got a, uh, some, someone read something who was one of the pastors there, and uh, just to kind of give you a feel of the work that is being done and the people who are being influenced uh, by some of the things that you guys have done. Um, I talk about you all the time. People say, well, what, you know, tell us about your church, and I just have the tremendous opportunity to tell all the wonderful things. And I, I just leave out the bad things usually. So, <laughs> But here's, uh, here's what a dear friend of mine, one of the pastors in this group, said. I finally had some time to reflect this morning since returning from Sacramento. Among other thoughts, I went back to the statement, the church recruited and hired our false selves. As I was journaling, I wrote these words as though I was speaking to my church. This is the false self that you hired, a man who has never been content in a ministry, who never feels like he is good enough, a man who is always trying to prove himself and is hoping beyond hope that this church will grow so people will step up and take notice of me. That's the person you hired. But that person is false and must not, to continue, and must not continue to exist because if he does, he will destroy this church and his family by the grace of God, this false self is being exposed and healed. And uh, that's just one of the stories of some beautiful things that uh, are going on. And I just thank you that, uh, kind of as, as one of you, I get out there and get to be uh, a, a part of that. Um, like I said, this passage that uh, Lorraine read is a dangerous passage. We are a little Christianized in that we know religious words and they come and filter into us and we can kind of in some way ignore what they have said, but this is radical, dangerous stuff that John the Baptizer is talking about. Today is, as you know, the first Sunday of Lent. And uh, the season of Lent is uh, about a six and a half week period of time between Ash Wednesday, which was this this past uh, um, Wednesday, and Easter Sunday, that the church has set aside over the centuries as a way to prepare ourselves for the celebration of the events surrounding Good Friday and uh, Easter. The cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ is coming. And it is the central event in history from the Christian perspective. And it's a good thing for us to take these almost seven weeks and pause and slow down and learn to say, in a sense, no to all the unruly and noisy desires on the surface of our lives. And to reflect deeply upon God, the story of our faith, and to reflect deeply upon our own lives. During Lent, if we approach the season with intentionality and purposefulness, we will be reminded, strangely enough, that we exist. 
They actually exist. There, there is a soul here. I have a soul. We have a soul. And that there is more behind the curtain than just the flurry of activity on the surface of our lives. And while it is good during the season of Lent to often say no to our many unruly and uh, noisy desires, to engage in actually a kind of deprivation in order to become more deeply attentive to the larger story of God still, the season of Lent must always be a celebration of life. It is never to be entered into as a kind of funeral dirge or as a contempt or a negation of life. To the contrary, it is a severe recognition that this life matters. This life we live matters. It counts. And it's a beautiful life. It's a wonderful life. And for almost seven weeks we were trying to pause and to slow down and in the process say no to the many unruly and noisy desires that occupy our attention constantly. And to remember at a very deep level that our lives have value. And that invisible things are real. And we must pull ourselves aside for a few weeks and remember these invisible things. And pull back the curtain on our often very small little worlds and pay attention and remember there's more. And the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, and the way of resurrection is to path to enter deeply into this invisible world. And we do this during Lent, often by acts of denial and deprivation, to remember that we are more and that this life is more than simply our many desires. But this season of denial and deprivation is not for the purpose of negating the importance of this world. For this world is crucially very important. And our lives in this world matter. And every square inch of this planet is filled with God and His glory and His beauty if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. In truth, we enter into the fasting from desires, the deprivations of Lent, for the purpose of entering more fully into the beauty of this world. And down through the centuries, the church has emphasized that Sundays don't count as Lent because Sundays are a time of celebrating the resurrection. And who can fast and deny themselves when you're celebrating the resurrection? And so from my perspective, and I think this is the practice of the church at its best down through the centuries, Sunday is a kind of freebie during Lent. So if you've sworn off things, if you've sworn off, let's say, ice cream during the season of Lent, I encourage you, stop off at the store on the way home, buy a, buy a bucket of it and eat it, watching whatever you want on Netflix and celebrate because Jesus has risen from the dead. And whatever fastings and denials and deprivations you've entered into during this, these six and a half weeks, we remember that Easter is coming. And then after that, we have seven weeks where we are celebrating and partying and rejoicing and indulging because while our Christian faith is about Good Friday and the cross, it is also about Easter and the empty tomb, about victory over sin, death, and the devil. And we remember that through the cross and the resurrection, these, these forces of sin, death, and the devil have been soundly and permanently defeated. There are still, of course, many skirmishes to fight, many battles ahead. But the war is won, the victory is secure, and the kingdom of God has come near. Now, we're calling this Lenten season series, The Way. And by the way, I just love the graphic that uh, you have on there, uh, Cody, wherever you are. Great, great job on that. Uh, you know, taking off the, 
the painting that was done over the last few weeks. Just, just absolutely marvelous. Um, and the, the, the title, The Way, is wonderfully uh, appropriate because the very first words that were used to describe the new followers of Christ in the book of Acts, this group of people in, 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 involved in this flourishing Jesus movement of the first century was that they were called followers of the way. That's the first title of Christians. Christian came later. It's actually a term of derision. The first description of the followers of Christ were they were followers of the way. While the Christian faith certainly and obviously has content that we are to believe and to trust, and this content continued to develop over the first few centuries, we should remember as well that the core of this Jesus movement of the first century was oriented around a way of life, the Jesus way. Contrary, actually, to how the church has often communicated its message over the last century or so, where our faith has often been relegated to the affirming of certain things that we're supposed to believe. In reality, from the very beginning of the church, when someone became a Christian, this person was making a decision to enter into the Jesus way. As one of my favorite New Testament scholars profoundly says it, you really can't be a follower of Christ without being a follower of Christ. And that's somewhat a funny thing to say, um, except we've actually had a tendency in many Christian circles to entertain the thought that a person could be a Christian without being a follower of Christ. And by that we mean that a person could pray a prayer and become a Christian and their sins are forgiven, they're on their way to heaven, but not in any really meaningful sense of the word, become a follower of Christ. I have no idea. Uh, from a scriptural and just practical perspective, how a person could be a Christian and not be learning how to follow Christ in the actual details of our daily lives and cooperating with the Spirit of God in that kind of formation in the Christ-likeness. Certainly it would be very difficult to find a biblical teaching that would somehow point us in that direction. But in calling this Lenten season series The Way, we are wonderfully celebrating the truth that to be a Christian means that we are becoming, gradually, over a lifetime, just like those first Christians of the first century, followers of the way. And I wish that we had time in a little living room setting, about an hour, two hours, three hours, to talk about this in depth. But we should know this. 60 to 70% of non-church people and even larger percentages of millennials and um, Generation Z have left and are leaving the church. And they will never return unless the church is learning in increasingly radical and subversive ways how to become followers of this beautiful and countercultural way of Jesus. See, those people, I just talk about that 60 to 70% and larger, um, they're not usually in this room. They're not round tables where things are talked about in leadership circles. And we can exist in a kind of bubble and we forget that they exist. They're not in this room. They're not sitting around our tables. But they should live in our hearts. They should be in our prayers. And in this Lenten season, we should be seeking God as to how to continue to learn how to become a people who are radically following the Jesus way. Because that 60 to 70% of non-church people who will not come back, the only thing that will make a difference if they see a community of people 
who are actually following the Jesus way. One of my favorite authors on the whole process of transformation and discipleship is Robert Barron. He's also a baseball fan, and this way I can celebrate spring training as it's going on, as I'm going to quote from him before. And I've done this over the years, but in light of the series, it just bears repeating, and I love this quote. In Barron's book, The Strangest Way, Walking the Christian Path, he writes this. Christianity, like baseball, painting, and philosophy, is a world. It's a way of life. And like those other worlds, it is first approached because it is perceived as beautiful. It enthralls us. A youngster walks onto the baseball diamond because he finds the game splendid. And a young artist begins to draw because she finds the artistic universe enchanting. Once the beauty of Christianity has seized the follower, she will long to submit herself to it, entering into its rhythms, its institutions, its history, its drama, its visions and activities. And then, having practiced it, having worked it into her soul and flesh, she will know it. The movement, in short, is from the beautiful, it is splendid, to the good, I must play it, to the true, it is right. One of the mistakes that both liberals and conservatives make, Barron says, is to get this process precisely backward, arguing first about right and wrong. No kid will be drawn into the universe of baseball by hearing arguments over the infield fly rule or disputes about bringing the designated hitter into the National League. And none of us will be enchanted by the world of Christianity if all we hear are disputes about the theories of the atonement and foolish opinions about the order of events at the end of days. Christianity, Barron says, is a captivating and intellectually satisfying game, but the point is to play it. It is a beautiful and truthful way, but the point is to walk it. Just remember that again. Christianity is a captivating and intellectually satisfying game. But the point is to play it. It is a beautiful and truthful way, but the point is to walk it. So in the time I have remaining, let's reflect on the Christian faith as the Jesus way and begin with one crucial activity that we must all engage in as we begin the season of Lent, and that is repentance. So for the rest of this message, I want us to enter into now a kind of a, a posture, internal posture of repentance. We put aside our excuses, put aside our justifications for who we are, that we can live our lives in no other way than we're currently living, that the problems of this world are out there. And instead, we are open right now to the Spirit of God calling us as individuals and as a church to the season of repentance. And we're going to reflect for a few minutes on the passage that Lorraine read earlier from Luke chapter 3, and we'll put that up on the screens now. This passage comes just before the beginning of Jesus' ministry. At this point in the Jesus story, no one has really heard of him. And now John the baptizer has come along, preparing the way for Jesus. And his message was essentially a message of repentance. So I'm going to read it again, and let's listen closely to God's word. Let's not read it as much as let it read us. And let's be in submission to it. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his, Philip, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis, which is, I think, a gum disease of some kind, and Lysanias, uh, tetrarch of Abilene, which is in Texas, of course, we know, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, 
The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley will be, shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly, were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Now, it will be a great mistake if we just talk about repenting, reflect together on the concept of repenting, understand the definitions of the various Greek and Hebrew words that are used to express the concept of repentance, and to do all that and not actually, right now, repent. So if we've created some space during this message and after it, to actually engage in repentance, to do it. In fact, um, Ash Wednesday, you may see these spikes up here, these dangerous, violent-looking spikes. Um, there's all these papers put on them. If you haven't, weren't here on Ash Wednesday, even during the message, instead of falling asleep or you know playing Angry Birds or whatever, you can, you can uh, head over here to one of these uh, sessions, in, uh, our little stations, garden stations, and grab one of those pieces of paper, and what you do is you draw an outline of your hand. Like, you know, used to do at Thanksgiving to make a turkey. And you, you, you do that. And then on the hand, you just write out something in your life you want to repent from. Don't hold back. Be honest. Write it down. Write it in code if you're afraid the person after you will see, will, will see it. And then come up here. Right when I'm speaking, it would be awesome uh, uh, to do that, especially at a good point where, you know, good point on that, good point in the sermon. Um, just put it over there. Also, there are stations over here where you can kneel. And you can write down prayers, you can write down things you wish to repent from, and just stick it into the, the little wire mesh thing that you can put them in. Use this as a time. There'll be time at the end as well uh, for you to do that when some worship will be going down and other prayers. So we've created a bunch of space for you to do that, and I invite you to at any time. So right now as we reflect on this passage for a few minutes. Let's do so in the spirit of repentance. Okay? Let's put aside all our excuses, justifications, all our accusations of others, all our looking out there at the big bad world away from us. But let's look 
Eros. The word repent in both the Older and Newer Testaments carries with it the idea of turning or returning. A change of mind. I was going one way, I was walking this one way, and I'm going to stop walking that way, and I'm going to turn around and come and walk the way of Jesus. I was thinking one way, and that way of thinking caused me to walk away from the way of Jesus. So I'm going to change that way of thinking. I'm going to change my mind, and I'm going to learn how to think the thoughts of God. For many people, many people who have been in church for decades, it perhaps has been a very long time since we have repented. I mean, really repented. Many people, many of us, have grown comfortable in our lives, and we have developed lifelong methods of justifying and explaining our behaviors and our ways of thinking. But if we are to be the people of God, the posture we must have every day of our lives is the posture of humility, of confession, of honesty, of self-awareness, repentance. So let's consider a few things in this passage to help us direct our thoughts. First, notice verse 14. When Luke begins to sum up the message of John the Baptist, here's what he says was his message. You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, for some reason, people heard about John, whoops, uh, and they, they came out to hear this wild man who was speaking out in the wilderness in the, by the Jordan. And the first thing he says is, you brood of vipers, you pile of snakes. Why are you here? Why are you here? Why did you come? What are you looking for? Do you even know? This is not the kind of sermon you preach if you want to grow your church. Right? Who's going to do that? I know all these people are planting churches. I guarantee you that's not how they begin their sermons. Because people are sad. People are hurting. People need to know they're okay. They need to be soothed. And I get that. Actually, in in a sense, agree with it to a point. But you preach repentance if you are certain there is something to repent from. You call in the doctor when you think the patient is sick. So let me ask a simple question of us all. Is the patient sick? Does the church today need to repent? Do we need to repent? Do I need to repent? I'll tell you what. Here's what I know. We are losing very quickly an entire generation of young people. Late teens, 20-somethings, 30-somethings. They are leaving the church in droves. And there is no indication that they are ever coming back. Many of them have continue to have very strong relationships with their families. A sizable percentage, I suspect the majority, have not really left the faith. They still believe. They just don't go to church. They're not a part of this church thing. And if you don't believe me, if you think I'm exaggerating, just gather a group of parents, parents in their mid-40s and on into their 60s and beyond, and ask them about their children, their grandchildren. And their relationship, their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren's relationship with the faith and with the church. And just listen. Don't talk. 
Ask questions. Don't make excuses. Don't give opinions. Don't give advice. Don't blame. Just listen. I've been in too many circles where church leaders are either blaming the next generation for their worldly views and lifestyles or they're trying to figure out how to track them back to the church and they're wearing skinny jeans and a cool hipster haircut. I don't know who does those kinds of things. Playing different music or or whatever, which is all fine. Not much of a problem there. But what I don't see church leaders doing very often is repenting for an expression of the Christian faith that has failed to demonstrate to our next generation and to the non-church the beautiful and transformative way of Jesus. We cannot invite people into the way of Jesus if we are not living this way ourselves. And if you are able to get non-church people talking honestly enough to you, you will know that they are not impressed with the church. That's about as close as I get to a you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come kind of message. But I think the big C church is sick. And we need a doctor. And we have wandered from the way of Jesus and we need to return. This stuff burns in me these days. We don't need to strategize about how to get people into our churches. We need to repent to return. And as John says in verse 8, if you're going to repent, then produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, he's saying, you got to change. You can't just talk about changing. You can't just theorize about it. You can't just discuss it. you got to change. We can't just feel sorry about how we've walked away. We have to actually return. Notice what he does in verse 9. He anticipates the reaction. Or the excuses and justifications. And he says, my words here, and don't you dare start talking about your spiritual heritage, your religious privileges, some kind of idea that you and God are doing great. God isn't impressed with any of that. He will raise up sons of Abraham from the rocks beneath your feet. So how does that apply to us? Well, I've heard this way too often. It's the big bad world out there that needs to repent. They're the ones who are sinning. They're the ones who have walked away from God. We're saved. We're believers. We've been forgiven. Our names are written in the book of life. We're the ones who go to church. We're the ones who are behaving right, or at least a little better than everybody else, or maybe not, so we think, whatever. What does God say to that? Well, if I understand the passage, God would say, okay, if that's your response, if that's your understanding, If you're not willing to repent, then I will look somewhere else to find the people who will walk the way of Jesus. But some in the crowd, the message is getting through. They don't want to pretend anymore. They don't want to make excuses. Something is happening inside them. They can't stop it. And they cry out, okay, what should we do? And John has a simple answer. If you have two shirts, share with someone who has none. Same goes with food. You got food, someone doesn't give your food away. Or to put it another way, don't be greedy. Don't store up riches among you. Don't, if someone is among you who has more excess and those without, that's wrong. Give stuff away. And don't forget the poor. Don't belittle them. Don't blame those who haven't made it. Don't forget the marginalized, the oppressed. Serve them. Defend them. Make sure they have enough. And don't be a part of systems that keep the poor poor, that keep the marginalized marginalized. 
And the message seems to begin through to those who are part of the one of the oppressive systems in that world at the time. Tax collectors are part of the system that oppresses the poor for the sake of the powerful. And they took in more money than Rome required in order to line their own purses. And Jesus says, don't take more than what is required. But in saying this, we need to realize he's messing with the entire system of injustice here. Who is going to be a tax collector if they just take what Rome is asking for? How are they going to make a living? The whole system will begin to collapse. The Roman soldiers ask the same question. What about us? What should we do? And John says, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Again here, the issue is money. It's greed and power and the oppression of the vulnerable among us. This is what is on the heart of John the Baptist and the heart of Jesus and the scriptures tell us today. And he doesn't tell the tax collector or the soldier to quit their jobs, but to do tax collecting collecting and soldiering differently as one who is walking the way of Jesus. But that kind of countercultural understanding of power is going to mess with systems. It's going to be a threat to systems of power, power over. And we know from church history that the predominant practice of the early church was that soldiers who became followers of Christ would simply not engage in the violent military practices of Rome. Some sacrificed their lives because of it. And for over 300 years, the predominant view of the church, with some notable exceptions, was that soldiering with Rome was incompatible with the way of Jesus. This remained the predominant view until the time came when the Christian faith began to be associated with the power of Rome and the Holy Roman Empire was formed. But regardless of your views on these things, what we know for certain is that the message of John and the message of Jesus was a politically and culturally subversive message. And we know this how? Because John was beheaded. Jesus was crucified. And for 300 years, followers of the way of Jesus suffered periodic persecutions and violent deaths and executions because their subversive message that Jesus was Lord and not Caesar was seen as a threat to the powers that be. But notice what Luke says at the end about the message of John. He says, And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. This way of Jesus, this way of repentance, and producing fruit in keeping with repentance is good news. Being called a brood of vipers is good news because it is an invitation to return to a way of life that is beautiful and is the best of all possible lives. It is a life where tax collectors and soldiers and CEOs and farmers and homemakers and salespeople and mechanics and construction workers and pastors and all of us are invited to a different way of life. The way of Jesus. The politically and socially and culturally subversive, countercultural and radical way of Jesus. An expression of the good news that the kingdom of God is now here in our midst and we are invited to walk into it. So let me close in this way. Um, we're going to have a time of um, prayer and repentance and singing together. Um, and so I'd ask Manuel to come at this point and you can prepare for that again. Remember, you can go up to the stations here, write prayers, put them in the prayer wire mesh thing there, and maybe write a thing of repentance on your hand and come up here and bring it here during this time. And I just got five words for us to bring with us in the season of Lent. Five words that will help us learn to repent, and I'm just going to mention them. Make a short comment. 
Then I'll close. First word. And I'm cheating here. It's two words, actually. Honesty and humility. It is time to stop making excuses. It's time. It's time to recognize our sin. To be honest, where my anger comes from. How, what my insecurity, my sense of inadequacy, my sense of not enoughness harms the people around me. I'm not going to talk about other people anymore. I'm going to pay attention to myself. Next word, emotion. This is a time for tears. This is a time to let, get into our bones the young people and the Millennials who are leaving the church. Some because they just want more. And we're not showing it. That should cause us to cry. We should weep for the sins of this world, for our own sin, for what we have done, what we have left undone. Next word is specificity. Let's just not say we're sinners. Let it be at that. Let's just not say we're angry and leave it at that. Let's say I was angry here at this point and I did this. I said that and I crushed another human being for a few moments. Spell it out. Say it. Weep over that. Posture is the fourth word. Kneel. Kneel. Fall down on the ground. Lie prostrate on the floor of your living room, your bedroom. Say, I've sinned. I've sinned against you. We as a church have sinned. Then finally, fifth, action. It's not enough to just admit we've done wrong. It's what will I do? What am I going to do next? What am I going to do to return? To stop walking that one way, to stop thinking that one way, and return, return to the way of Jesus, the beautiful, wonderful way of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. As we enter into this communal time of confession, please come to us. Expose us. Don't let us hide. And bring your healing and your forgiveness. In Christ's name, amen.
Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. You hear us calling. You hear us calling. Abba, Father. You hear us calling. You hear us calling. Abba, Father. Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy. I'd like to invite the elders to come at this point assume a posture of uh, repentance and confession as we bring this to the Lord. Please pray with me. Almighty, everlasting, and triune God, we have heard your words in calling to your church, to your ways, and correcting its wanderings. Lord, we acknowledge that you have given your church great responsibility and power both now and throughout its history and Lord we pause this morning to confess to you that the church has often misused that power we confess to the many instances of personal abuse by leaders or people who hide behind the veil of the church and people with power in the church and we confess to you the use of the church's power within the culture to protect the perpetrators and to silence the victims. Lord, we confess the church's propagation of institutions of racism throughout its history. We confess the complicity of the church in racism throughout our culture. The church is too often focused on gaining or securing power and protecting those who wield that power rather than caring for those who do not have as much power. Lord, the power that you have given to your church has been misused. It has been used to silence victims and to devalue people based upon things like gender and race or where people come from. Lord, we confess these sins and we seek your ways. has reacted to injustices or slights in ways that harm you 
and get in the way of your kingdom growing and flourishing. We know that there is much in this world that is not as you desire. We confess that the church has contributed to divisiveness, and we repent. Lord, you have called the church to be a place that trains us how to be genuinely righteous and how to shine your light in our homes and in our communities. Teach us how to do this. Show us where righteousness has been used to justify anger rather than to point to you. We repent of the times that we have claimed righteous anger when we were really just angry and hurt. We confess that this has resulted in divisiveness in our world of the church seeing itself as right instead of seeking to show a different way. Teach us about righteousness that comes from the inside out. Let us be people of justice and mercy. We confess that the church has been unwilling to listen to others and to you. Show us where our ears are closed when they need to be open. Let us be the church that seeks first to understand. Give us your ears to hear others and your eyes to see others. We repent today for all the times that the church has been quick to speak and for the times that its words were used to bring injury and separation rather than hope and reconciliation. Let us learn to not jump in with our words to defend or justify when you would have us be silent instead. Allow the church to listen to you first and speak with your voice not ours. Let its words be words of hope, wisdom, and reconciliation. We confess that the church has not been slow to become angry. Instead, it reacted to slights and injustices against us or others with anger and getting a result that ends in dividedness, not wholeness. Instead, let the church be a place that teaches us how to root out anger so that we may become a people in whom anger doesn't exist. Examine our hearts when anger rises up in us so that we may understand its source. Help us to be vulnerable to hearing from you during those times. Teach us to let go of anger and replace it with patience and love. Show us that anger is not your way or the way to the life you desire for us. Show us how to be the church that experiences your love in such a way that it overflows to others. Help us be the church that demonstrates patience, hope, and love in all it does. You hear us calling, you hear us calling, Of the greater church as your bride 
we have not always represented you well. We've forgotten that we serve you. We've tried to push our agenda under your banner. And we've tried to convince you to sign off on what we want instead of what you desire. Our selfishness and egos have muddied the role of the church. And we have been complicit in behaving more like some of the Pharisees, self-righteous and legalistic, instead of reflecting the attitudes and actions that better resemble Christ. Your word has called us to be salt and light. And yet the reputations of churches, deservingly so, have sometimes been exclusive and full of hypocrisy. Father, we need you. Deepen our desire to be more like Jesus. Show us the way. Now may the peace and the power and the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.